And we are live with our 107th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Um, we talked about logging and monitoring last week, uh, but this week we're excited to have Marcus on because all we're going to do is bag on Ruby all episode long. No, uh, we're, we're going to talk about why Ruby is uh, difficult, I, I guess, is really what it, what it boils down to. I mean, there's good things, there's bad things about every language. Uh, Marcus is an expert around that. We'll get to his background in a minute. Um, outside of that, uh, we are planning a, um, a follow-up to Midsummer Night's Con uh, this, for this winter um, with a, a similar group. Uh, so watch for that. Uh, we still haven't uh, quite um, quite nailed down the exact dates for it, uh, but it'll be sometime in the middle of the winter, right? Uh, around winter solstice. That's 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 going to be the plan anyway. Um, and outside of that, we've got some training coming up. Watch our Twitter feeds. Watch um, appsec.com. Um, the rest of that will pop up from there. And please, please feel free to jump into the conversation, whether on Slack, uh, the, the link to our Slack channel is on our website, or uh, just DM us, or yeah, even jump on the YouTube page and comment there. Um, if you've got any questions about what we're talking about or what we've talked about in the past, please do so. Um, Ken, I don't think we've got anything else right now. Um, any announcements that I'm missing or you feel like I, you know, we should bring up that I forgot about? No, no, nothing. Uh, I don't think there's anything that like you forgot. Not at all. Um, so I, uh, I, I can uh, introduce Marcus. I don't know if we should yeah. go right into it or what. Yeah, I, I mean, the only other thing I, from a news perspective, um, right? This last week there was that Slack RCE. I don't know if you want to talk about the bug bounty a little bit before we dive into Ruby um, and what what's happened there. Um, are, are you familiar with that, Ken? Um, so I, I don't really um, here. I've only caught because this all just happened. I think like Friday. I, the only thing I, th these are the only details I know. Uh, it wasn't like I think the payout was lower than some people expected. But then I, I'd heard I have never I, I haven't looked at the details at all. I just heard that that RC was like um, you needed. I, I think there was something missing to be weaponized. That's all I can remember, and that might have been why the price was lower I've, I've just skimmed it and it seemed to me that there was a, a very delicate chain of user interaction but i'm not sure if that was the reason for the for the lower payout or not i've not looked at, at the details yeah I, I mean from a from a researcher perspective you know i mean that's the report from hacker one yeah you can go read through it i mean it's xss but the, the problem is it's an, slack is an electron application so it runs inside of you know it's basically node running on your desktop inside of a container so xss is the equivalent of code execution right so remote code execution um, but from a researcher perspective i have a really hard time with Hey, this is RCE. This is a critical vulnerability, and yeah, maybe it does line up. And you know, Slack only pays fifteen hundred or whatever for critical vulnerabilities. But this is the sort of thing that could have been turned into this great like Trojan horse that would have taken down. I mean, let's be honest. You know, most of the you know the security industry or a lot of industries for a long time had they been able to inject something in there, right? 
So uh, like the, the the payout doesn't reflect the risk to Slack or to the customers. And I think that's where the the big discussion point jumps, right? Is everybody's like, really? You only paid out, you know, 1500 bucks for something that would have been egg on your face, like would have been reported all over the news. Um, it, it just seems like your reputation is worth more than that. Um, I mean, you know, Ken, I know you guys at, at GitHub for a critical, you're, you're going to pay out more than that, right? If somebody found RCE and GitHub Enterprise, that would be huge. Am I not right? And I, no. I said that right as you took a bite. Sorry. No, that's cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I was just trying to sneak in a stack. Um, yeah, it, it would probably be in the range of, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think 15 to 20,000 is the average for a critical. Yeah. For us, yeah. For, for our program. I mean, it's it's actually public, our pricing and, and how that all works. But yeah, RCs are... So the problem with all pricing is that someone has to assign the specific vulnerability to the pricing slot you define. So, um, and if that assignment is wrong, it doesn't matter if there's a higher pricing slot available. So, and I think the, the bigger problem is not the payout in itself, but how to classify into the pre-assigned payout tiers you might have. That's, that's a bigger problem. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it speaks to kind of the triage of those 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 findings, right? Um, and how Slack, I, well, I, I mean, whatever team it is that's triaging what's coming in from the bug bounty, how it's getting classified. Um, I mean, I know those in, those conversations that I'm in, we have a tendency to you know assume the worst, and then convince ourselves that the worst, you know, like is there a path to make it to that that worst case scenario? Because if there is, then it justifies a higher payout. If there's no path to it, then there's not. Yeah, but the path right. might not just not be known. So what you what this vulnerability was, was could be a path of an exploit chain. And yeah. um, uh, the later, the one, the other small bug, which could make this bug really, really, really bad, just is not found right now. Yeah. So, um, and this, that's a problem I always have when, with these kinds of discussions, because you can always turn any line of code which introduces a vulnerability into a real vulnerability, given something other unknown happens. Yeah. And yeah. to then classify, and you can you can chain 10 small bugs and have a perfect RCE, and why wouldn't a part be worth less? Because every every single part, if it were, wouldn't exist, might, might kill this chain. So it's yep. really hard for me to decide, okay, this is just an XSS, but maybe this XSS could be part of an RCE later on. So it's a real one, which would have rewarded a higher payout. So it's really hard to just tell, okay, so it's ever so with researchers submitting a vulnerability and it's not a full RCE with a big payout, but you just didn't put in the time to find the full RCE. Maybe it's it will be activated with the next release. The next release has a bug, which turns it into one. So it's really, it's more like a lottery if you get the full payout because the current state of the system allowed to justify the bigger payout. This is a, 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 yeah, a function I, over time. It's not like it's not like the snapshot. Okay, I submit this vulnerability, and it's worth a lower amount right now. But tomorrow it could be worth uh, ten times more because there are other bugs found. So it's really hard for me. I, I could I couldn't point to a better system. I can only point to, to the problem here. Yeah. Yeah. So just I just want to back up here for a second too. I think that the, there's one thing I because I, I had not looked into this at all. I just kind of did a brief skim. So correct me if I'm wrong. I'm gonna just speak to this at a high level. There's a payload, you execute the payload as the victim in your Slack instance, that RC is an RC on your machine, not on like slack.com, right? 
Yes. yes yep. All right. Yep. Okay. So in that case, this is different because for us, like, well, there's okay. So I want to back up because this uses Electron, right? Which is like the main way that these desktop client apps work. And Electron itself, there's a lot you have to to use it out of the box. There's a basically they leave all of the configuration up to you when it comes to security. There's a lot of things that um, th this is a common thing. So, but however, this is a this is a little bit different because you had asked Seth what about like a GitHub or an RC in uh, GitHub Enterprise. Sure, that would be an issue, but it, this is not the same thing is my point. This is a client running on your machine and that totally sucks if your machine gets RC'd. Um, however, there's a few chained steps and this is not something that is like uncommon that happens to Electron apps. It's actually very common. Um, we have this happen occasionally with Adam. We we don't even triage that. We send that off to that team. They can handle that, right? So I guess what I'm saying is like, there's a few factors here. One, this is not an RCE of Slack.com. Yeah. Different. There's no mass exfiltration of user data. The steps take a quite a few steps, uh, but although it's, you know, it's not impossible to, to execute this or anything like that, but the impact is, you know, whoever's you share a Slack channel with might be able to do this to you or was able yeah. to do this to you. But I just think that it's, it's not some like everybody's data got pwned type deal. That's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. So I can see why they didn't go with the critical call on this. And even though that okay. sounds crazy, like shouldn't RC be, but man, really, I don't think so. Not on your, not on your Slack instance or your Slack app running on your machine. Yeah, it's a problem. Well, if, if you if you hit the developer machine, you by definition hit is the developer's credentials, and most developers, frankly, frankly speaking, have a really bad hygiene. So um, they do not separate clients from each other. If you talk about freelancers, they do not separate uh, um, development environments from production environment access. It's all in some ENV variables which you have to set prior running to. So most developers are like dirty pigs in that area. So if you if you argue, okay, so. So yeah. are security people. We all have yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, security um, tools are some of the worst. And, and in yeah. terms of stored so threads, the problem, the problem is now, this is just a small step. So you could have weaponized this to target some developers and maybe even Slack developers themselves. And then from their step zone to, um, to target Slack.org. So that's a problem I have right now, because if you, if you assign a criticality level to a small thing like this, okay, arguably smaller than direct exploitation of Slack.com, um, how do you know there it it couldn't be used with something unknown together to get you to a, to a full exploitation? Yeah, right. And so this is dangerous. This is what I want to say. This is dangerous. I certainly personally think it's worth far more than one thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. I don't yeah. think what I said before communicated that. I do think it, this. Yes, I think that this was a low payout. I think that the 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 risk is higher. But I wanted to just point out for us at GitHub when we call something critical. That's the highest tier that we can have. What that means is you can send a payload to my machine and immediately, or sorry, to my website, and immediately you've got access to those systems and you can pivot throughout my network, possibly access the data of other users. It's a scary, scary thing. And it doesn't require much user. It doesn't require user action. We're talking about critical as in we left something open and this is bad. Now, I don't think that this falls into critical and I don't think it falls into critical because I don't think it's a mass exploitation of user data or infrastructure that holds a ton of user data, but I do think it's dangerous. That's yeah. what I just want to say there. 
I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, if, I mean, because I, I could argue either either way, right? To be honest with you, because this is Slack's core business functionality. The fact that I can any Slack that I'm in, I can. So the way that I read it is, I can get RCE on anyone else that is connected to that same Slack instance that's running the Electron app. They're not inside of uh, the browser, um, which is the majority of people. So at that point, I'm like, yes, <laughs> right? Like, Do you even need RCE to Slack.org if you have all the people already? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Because you've got all the clients there. And again, I, I kind of go back to that Trojan horse idea, right? If I really wanted to, you know, it, hell, Bitcoin mining or whatever else you want to talk about there. But at the very least, I could do some huge denial of service and just start every Slack channel that I'm in, I'm starting to send this out to everybody and crash all those systems and cause Slack to have all sorts of... So there's the, the reputational risk there is what kind of raises the bar for me as opposed to just the RCE by itself. I mean, I think about Twitter, I think about uh, what TweetDeck and that XSS that went through there which was, it's kind of a similar thing. Yes, you're not necessarily attacking Twitter at that point, but you're attacking all of these clients around it um, and you're causing the issues with them. So yeah, I, I mean, it, it walks a fine line for me as well, I guess is what I'm saying. And that that's why, like just us having this discussion, right, warrants more of a payout in my mind than you know, what, what was attached to it. I, I had an interesting thought about on how to value payouts. You have to argue, so what if this one wasn't found via HackerOne, but active exploitation by a state actor, and what was what would be the market value drop of the company? That should that should determine the payout. Obviously, you do not give them the full market value drop, but it should be proportional to that one, which is even hard, which is also hard to estimate, but we need to set some boundaries here, so lower bounds and higher bounds. So, and if you, as a researcher, do the, put in the full work, it should be, rel yeah, but... It didn't happen, so we do not know what the market value drop is. And Slack is public, I yeah. do not know. Um, yeah, it's, it's just another way to, to value these things. You just go for economic damage and then a fraction of that. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to solve this one today, right? Very um, unlikely. We can only put in, put in some, some constraints on a possible solution. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it, you know, it just goes back to the, the whole, you got to... You really have to have discussions around this internally with your team on what the real risk is associated with it. And even, uh, you know, to the researcher community as well, how, like, what sort of message it sends to them about the vulnerabilities and digging into your program, right? Especially the public programs. I, you know, I know certain public programs have great reputations, other have very poor ones because of the response and be, because of the, uh, because of how serious the, um, yeah, the the team takes the vulnerabilities when they pop in. So, man, another thing that I don't think that that was even discussed is I was I'm, I was reading the thread and like there, I think that there's multiple reasons why this researcher is probably I'm assuming the researcher is not happy. I don't know what the I honestly wasn't paying attention to any of this, but assuming the researcher is not happy, I see why. So their engineering team, it looks like didn't talk to the security slacks engineering team. It didn't, it looks like they didn't talk to the security team. This researcher waited months and months and months and wanted to disclose this. They told the researcher to hold off. However, slacks engineering team went and then posted a blog post about their like fix and this situation. They didn't mention the researcher. They didn't mention the RCE. 
um, like the the exact sorry the the write up for this RSD. They, and so the then the C, the the like interim CSO over there at Slack had to step in and apologize sincerely to the the boundary researcher and say, look, there was a misstep. We didn't communicate internally. That's our fault. Engineering wasn't supposed to release that with like this is a mistake. And they were trying to like, I honestly think they were trying to like, oh crap, this is just you know mistakes happen, miscommunication happens. But I can see why someone would be upset in that um, situation. So for what it's worth. Yeah. 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 I didn't, I didn't get down into all those comments. I'm looking at it now, but yeah, that in and of itself is a pretty big mistake. Yeah. With, with it being a, a sub $2,000 payout with, with that misstep, you know, it taking months and months, like I, I can see why anybody would be kind of like, I'd not be happy either. So um, yeah. Yeah. But we should, we should introduce Marcus. We should get into Marcus. We brought him here. That. <laughs> now that yeah. he's been involved in the discussion. Uh, <laughs> That is. Okay. Yes. All right. So, so, so market, I'm going to say his la last name badly. Uh, yeah. Mar Marcus Sherp. Uh, he, Pretty good attempt. So yeah. there was an attempt. That attempt was made. <laughs> yes. uh, so he's, 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 so he, we brought Marcus on because I, we had this conversation, this conversation was kind of going on, you know, we hinted at it a couple times on this podcast. Like I've definitely started to, kind of bitch and moan about Ruby and like doing security reviews. Cause I've been doing it for about a decade. And when I complain, it's because like, that's a lot of experience, a lot of years and experience dealing with the headaches of Ruby. And I'm finally like getting to the point where it's just like, what's the point? Like, I'm just going to, I more have more fun reviewing stuff. So that got a little like more and more leaked out. I know Seth talks all the time about like freaking Ruby, you know, but that's like more private conversations, but all this stuff is starting to leak out now. Marcus caught wind of it and Marcus has a very different, he has a very same kind of uh, maybe the same kind of opinion of Ruby having some difficulties, but from a different way with more structured thought. And um, uh, I wanted him to kind of discuss some of that, his background, like the mutant unparser uh, data mapper one and two, those are projects that Marcus, um, I think now you primarily lead a couple of those, right? Like those. No, so data mapper, data mapper one uh, was basically archived because there was not much to do anymore because open source economy sucks at a certain point. Um, then um, data mapper two was basically um, the ideas in data mapper two went into ROM when I was basically absorbed by full time consulting and the entire data mapper team, but uh, Piotr Solnitsa, and he, he basically took the entire thing and brought it on its own to ROM. It, it's we still are credited, but um, what our M is right now is purely his his baby. So I, I can't take any credit for that one because um, I do not agree to everything, but it's certainly better than the state we had before it. So, um, but uh, obviously I cannot even judge it because I didn't write anything public in that area. So I can't. I'm, I'm not related all in there. It's more like it's more like more the foundational libraries um, which he's still being using and slowly replacing with DryRB um, are still inspired by stuff we did that time. So. I think he, he wrote his own equalizer, which was derived from the equalizer we made for Data Mapper 2. Um, uh, he took over my inflector library, which was an extracted XLIP inflector, um, and so on and so forth. So most of my Ruby actually right now is abandoned, but mutant. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah. So I basically, I'm, I'm professional. I do Haskell right now. I really enjoy it. And um, Ruby mutant is is provides too much value to too many people to just let it die. Let's say it that way. Yeah. 
That's well, fair, and, but and, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say part of the reason that we, you know, we we wanted Marcus on was his experience from the development side in developing against Ruby, right? Uh, so I, I know the big complaint that we kind of that we have on the the security side, especially when we do security or secure code reviews, is just the the complexity that goes into it, right? Determining what exactly is happening with Ruby means that review reviewing one line of Ruby is like reviewing, you know. Everything. Everything, yeah, it's it's a it's it hundreds and hundreds of lines of Java and other things just based on the meta programming and then the libraries that you know the interpretation that goes on behind the scenes. It is it's a difficult prospect to actually tease out vulnerabilities and and know what is happening. You know, um, I mean, so dynamic, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but uh, you know, Marcus, like the the initial discussion that we had on Twitter or that you and Ken had on Twitter. Uh, remind us what it was that, you know, that, so why that sure. came about. I'm not sure anymore. I think it was several discussions. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a long discussion. <laughs> and so I would, would argue that, 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 that the, the, it all boils down to, I do not want to run a development process which can only be successful when I rely on just human discipline to not do certain things. Yeah. That, that's that's the summary of all of this. So when I when I write a development cycle, I want that there is some kind of a of a threshold, and then when I'm below the threshold, the system just says no. So when I'm below a certain discipline threshold, but most of the correctness of a Ruby program is only guarded by discipline, by human discipline. Human discipline varies over time. I can be not enough caffeinated. I can have a bad day, whatever. But the language will just eat it and. That's bad because I can. It's so easy to cut corners. And uh, one of my statements I didn't I didn't say this before to Ken I think so far is that the average quality you can expect on any piece of uh, piece of code written in a specific language is the average of all the pushback developers get from the language itself. So when you have a language like Ruby, which basically allows you to do everything un uh, uh, when it just must must parse basically. Um, the average quality we will expect because you can write the best code you want, but you will have to deal with the ecosystem, and the ecosystem can ruin everything. And that's that's the core the core thing with Ruby. We can I think Ken and I started the discussion on on specific syntactic and semantic structures of Ruby, but it all boils down to to the average you experience as a developer is the average of. The average quality the language enforces stock because no, because only a small fraction of people actually have good tests, and only a small fraction of these actually have a Lindler and for a small fraction. And so it's it's it, it's just a fractal, and this fractal can just raise the average a little bit, but it will never beat the these the, the default pushback a language has. That's my current yeah. mental model of the state of any dynamic language. We um we go through this with our so Seth and I uh, give give this like secure code review course where we teach people how to do secure code reviews. But one thing we focus on, just a background real quick, Marcus. Like security people get thrown pretty much anything, right? Like hmm. like this happens very frequently in consultant consulting too, where it's like, all right, um, do we have any? I don't know. Do we, yeah, like let's, let's use Ruby. Do we have any Ruby on Rails specialists? No. Okay. Well, you got a week or two to kind of brush up on uh, what Ruby and Rails is, and then do this secure code review. That happens unfortunately all the time. So, um, anyways, our course is geared at like yeah, just basically like teaching people 
here you're given any code base, any language, whatever, start going. Well, one of the exercises is we actually have very simple. We have people uh, sit down and they look at a, um, they don't know that it's a device uh, before action, but that's what it is, right? It's, it's a device. It's actually written to device. I think it's like, like authorized user or something like that. But anyways, yeah. the reason we have them do that. Oh, sorry about that. So did you hear the before action it's, authorized user bit? You said every, no. it's the moment I okay. said you froze, you were unfrozen. So it's sorry. Okay. No. Yeah. So the authorized user bit that's, we just say like, Tell us what you know about this authorization. Tell us everything you can figure out about this authorization feature, this decorator. So inevitably, most of the class has a very, very difficult time figuring out where that that uh, before action comes from. And that's the point. That's the whole point is like there's inside of when Rails boots up, you know, it, it looks at its gem. It looks at its gem files and its dependencies. Everything gets loaded. It takes a little while. Cool. But like. There's at no point an easy visibility into where for like, if I'm just sitting down with this code, where that function's defined. And then once you do find where it's defined, good luck getting somebody who's not super, super familiar with Ruby to understand that metaprogramming. If you've ever looked at like how devise does that, like how it's, it's metaprogramming at its finest, it's like super confusing. That doesn't make any sense to anybody. when they look at that code, they're like eval this long. So is this all a string? Like, how does this work? Yeah. Right. So um, now that's somebody who doesn't, who's kind of novice level. I get that right at, with Ruby, but I, I think that it's unrealistic to expect somebody to sit down and you to think it's okay that that person might sit down with this code base and not know that like where that, that method's defined it, not be clear anywhere where that method's defined. There's no evidence as to where that method's defined. There are things you can do. You can instantiate the controller class. You can do a source location. If you know that, that, that that's even available, like if, and assuming you have rails console available to you and you can load up all assuming the code. Even roots in your development environment at that moment. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you know all these tricks and you can get it actually running, sure. It's but like, I think that, that that's half of the methods they actually depend on database state and the database state might be different in production and so on and so forth. Yeah. I know this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. The inheritance chain is one thing, but then where, like which part of the inheritance chain is going to be called depending on the dynamic situation, all of these yeah. things. And like even even, even the concept scope. So if you have a production application with um, auto loads, I think this is where our discussion started because Probably. if you have a, if you have a production application with auto loads, and the application is large enough, you will observe different constant scopes because of the, of the sequence of events which triggers the autoloads, which populates the constant scope differently in a semantic different way. So I've seen, I've seen large rates deployments go into substantially different constant scope on, on nesting, which concept is defined where and so on. And it might not be caught by the code. It might be caught in the code in a bad way and so on and so forth. So most of my time I spent as a Ruby and Rails consultant is to First, just make it deterministic. So whenever Ruby process boots, it should have the same constant scope. It should have it should have loaded all the code, not just a small fraction of it, because we do not want when the first time the Google crawler comes along and hits a certain URL, we get a dynamic require, which then in the old days requires mass n through three different uh, transitive dependencies, and then your division operators fucked. So um, yeah. that, <laughs> that, yeah. that so but Ruby at a at a at a higher correctness guarantee level is mostly unfucking it. You, you just spend time to, to mitigate all these things. You, you, you spend time on 
um, patching out autoloads. You spend time on uh, preventing evil at runtime because you have to. You want to be sure that the, the code you actually validated, however you did it, is the same which is in production. So you cannot. You need to make sure that dynamic modification doesn't happen after a certain point of time. I call this the pivot or boot inflection point. I, I made multiple names for that in different scenarios, and um, this is just a giant pain in the ass. So sorry to say it. <laughs> and oh, um, yes. And the, the problem here is um, Ruby tries. Okay, so it, it also there are two levels of, of meter programming. So you can do meter programming via just uh, pushing some procs around and doing calling the define method uh, uh, with a block. That's fine, but you can even just generate source and evaluate. So there is there's even and uh, the first one is easier to review than the second ones because if you have dynamic source code generation and evaluate back into the runtime, it's much harder to review than if you had um, just proc-based meter programming construction by the reflection APIs. And yeah, so, but the discussion started on, on, on where Ruby went bad or went wrong. And lots of people like to like to call out, um, yes, but there are that many startups with that much market value and Ruby isn't that bad. But I would like just like to turn the question around. So do you think these these companies exist because Ruby or despite Ruby? Because um, the, the, they do not solve the problem of running Ruby in production. That's not the value generator. The value is that GitHub exists and uh, allows me to do easy source code management. So the value is not generate is generated via Ruby, not not nobody pays GitHub five uh, five dollars or whatever the current um, subscription fee is to run a Ruby process which serves me. It's not about the Ruby thing; it's just about the, of the about the business problem being solved. And if it, if in a certain moment in time you have n Ruby developers available, uh, you just start with them. So it's, it's it could have easily been uh, Java developers or F sharp developers, who knows developers. So I I don't. There is there is some kind there is no there is no there is correlation yes but is there is there causation I don't know and I do not like to be shut down in uh, with this argument because uh, we have no indication that the success is because Ruby or despite Ruby. I have a theory on this, by the way. I, okay. I I've always thought that it's more of the technology choice in the moment of the developers, but really it's the developer culture that really pushes forward a company. What I mean by that is I think a lot of the success of, of some of these places, it's based on their engineering culture. I could be completely wrong because there's multiple, let's, let's, let's be honest. The success of any company does not lie on just one element, like a great engineering culture. It's a big part, but it's not the only piece. But I do think that you do like when I come across a group of Ruby developers, I usually feel like I can expect pretty good engineering um, like backgrounds, pretty good engineering culture. At least that's been my experience. Uh, that having been said, I've seen a lot of those same developers move to other languages like uh, Golang. You had mentioned Haskell, uh, Erlang. I've seen like um, uh, Node, um, Rust. Rust. Yeah, I've seen I've seen all of these and these shifts. So I, I don't know if it's really like necessarily that the language was ever the success so much as the engineering culture. Uh, yeah, that's just my, that's always been kind of my theory on that. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you're seeing a lot of people move away from Ruby and even at GitHub, while our main product is the monolith, more and more is being broken out of that monolith. And I'm actually reviewing less and less Ruby, thankfully. And uh, 
Yeah, I, I do. I, it's it's sort of like when I do a Golang or a Node review, it's very easy to follow. And that's weird because Node used to be a pain, but not so much anymore. Um, but anyways, not to get off on a tangent, but those are like very easy to figure out where things are defined, where they're pulled in at. Um, just from a review standpoint, it's, when, it's when you do code review in, in Node, do you do do you have to often resort to the equivalent of um, asking Ruby for the source location for a different method or no? Nope. Now everything's <laughs> declared in the same place and it's easy to go trace back through. There's less this the, the other thing that you mentioned and you touched on, I I think for a moment there was the fact that like so much happens with once your application is booted. Like those dynamic variables that happen at load time and that happen also based on the data being sent to the application with Ruby that that oftentimes is like far more important than than or at least deterministic on how how behave how it's going to behave than like looking at just raw source code with no other mm -hmm. context and nothing booted up yeah and uh, and just to touch a little bit on it so when I when I from data mapper one disappeared into consulting basically for the last seven years, um, we took over a relatively large Rails application, which was um, basically Spree at that time. It's a very, okay. in my yeah. opinion, not very good written open source card. And um, it has lots of performance problems, lot of security problems. So we implemented refactor at least. So that was basically the job for seven years. And um, we, we identified that the only way to squeeze out a little bit of... Um, being sure that what we do is a good iteration is just to give up any kind of static analysis and just go full dynamic analysis. So dynamic. just boot the application and ask for its semantics via tests and figure and try to minimize what possibly could be implemented in the code that test didn't ask for. That, that delta had to become too close to zero. And this had lost lots of, and this needs to be automated because there is no way a human can go through code and verify is all are all semantics possible in which the code could possibly express um, ask for in the code, which is that's important. No, you, no human can do this, and uh, the only way we could could go there where we where we went effectively was some form of dynamic analysis, just writing a tool which kills the code and just asks the test to not kill the code basically. So kill semantics in the code. This is yeah. where this entire mutation testing thing started. So we, we started working with mutation testing on DataMapper 2, but DataMapper 2 got canceled out of economic reasons, basically. And then we went into consulting and just applied whatever we wanted to do DataMapper 2 with in that scenario. And even then, we were not happy. Even then, with, with full mutation coverage, we were, after we had like 99.999, whatever, uh, we would still be fighting external libraries most. So we would most of the time have to, on each Rails update, go in and just, okay, what, what, what kind of core patches they do now? What kind of core patches get, um, get loaded late? What kind of third-party libraries might have an auto-load which loads mass n at the time it was still a thing? And so on and so forth. So, and what, what, I'm, what I'm asking by myself, does a dynamic language inherently lead to the mass Ruby finds itself in from our perspective right now or not? That's a yeah. I I mean, I, yeah. That, that that that's a really good question because it. I I mean, it feels like that's the path that dynamic languages go down, right? Yes, and I have a thought on why. Because in dynamic languages, the only safe choice for a language maintainer to do is to add syntax. There is yeah. nothing 
They, you can add you can add you can add to the std lib which is safe you can add optional parameters everywhere you can add optional para, optional parameters returned by blocks you can you can just make all the signatures wider but you can never remove anything yeah because nobody has the coverage and there's obviously no type checker which is a form of coverage to actually change something so we still have we still call private class method to set um, a singleton method on a on a module as private just because we cannot change it to private module method or uh, private singleton method. Uh, we could only add the new one and declare the old one deprecated and remove it in 30 years. But there is no, there is no safe, destructive change path, which is sometimes required in yeah. the Ruby language and, and all dynamic languages. So Java, uh, the JavaScript people did it, played it really safe because the amount of syntax JavaScript adds in a major release is basically a Ruby minor release. So yeah. uh, it's, the amount of new syntax we get and um with a dynamic language you in my opinion need to get the syntactic and semantic core right in the beginning and then because after that you are stuck after that it has a little bit of adoption obviously when you are when only you and your friends are using it you can change as much as you want but if you have a big corpus you need to stay compatible with the only thing you can do in dynamic ventures as a maintainer and i do not blame the maintainers for this because they, they want to make some progress they want to make everybody's life easier is to add things you can i, I call dynamic languages add only languages for that reason <laughs> yeah no I, I mean you see the same behavior with python like python 2 to python 3 like i think about it i mean there were some breaking changes between those two but the majority of it was hey we're adding new things um uh, pearl as well like yeah just like it kind of spun out of control with Perl 6. Um, so it's the same sort of dynamic issue that you're dealing with. And then like the, the inherent state of the application, because it is dynamic, it is so exactly what you're saying. It's so difficult to predict what's being pulled in, right? If you've ever even, you know, Ken, I'm thinking about even those Django applications that we load up there, right? that if you're not super descriptive on the third party libraries that you pull in, all of a sudden uh, what I run on my machine looks completely different from what you run on your machine. And we pulled from the same master branch. We just happened to start it up 10 minutes apart, right? Or, or whatever it is. Um, so so I, don't, I don't know how we get away from that outside of Marcus, what you're saying, like having a way to actually disable or delete functionality, delete specifications um, but a, a company, like a lot of the companies I deal with are not going to, they're never going to choose a language where they think, Hey, we're going to write something and we're not going to be able to run it for the next, you know, five years. Right. Um, that's, that's, it, it, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. And the, so I, I'm, I'm past the point where I say, okay, so there shouldn't be dynamic languages, but there should be taking a dynamic language as a form of voluntarily voluntary taking on tech debt and tech debt is fine as long as you have a payment plan and yeah. i see i see as a consultant um, sometimes with a security focus sometimes with a, okay stuff is burning please help us um i see that the pa payment plan is is completely ignored it's like so if you choose ruby you, you need to think about okay so I choose a language with, uh, it, it's basically at only evolution, um, with every everything can change everything. So then my test pattern, my, my application boot pattern and so on needs to accommodate for this. But I don't see these kinds of sorts right now. I see them partially. And I really hope that Ruby 3.0 uh, delivers a native deep freeze feature 
which would be really helpful because we can just put an end to certain kind of of, of, of ad hoc mutation. Um, I actually co-maintain a deep freeze library for Ruby right now, which I use in production. Um, but um, it would be far better to have it built into the language because you can, in worst case, if you want to defeat the deep freezer, you just redefine the freeze method. So then the deep freezing will not happen. <laughs> so to uh, freeze, are you calling are you calling like a free like a freeze method on certain like methods or like what do you how how are, how yeah, do so, you so implement? There is a public one. There is a public one. It's called uh, it's a the gem is called Ice Nine, which um, it's it's basically it's a generic. It's a generic algorithm to discover all objects which are referenced from a specific object. It would go through instance variables, through items in the array, through hashes. It just calls freeze on all of them, and okay. uh, and has a has a has a cycle protection to not go wild. And uh, that's 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 the one object. But in in certain mature Rails applications, I deploy, I actually patch out evil after I know the app should be loaded, and I'm fine. It crashes in production because then I just need to force the load earlier, and. Um, so that's that's the end game, but it's, it takes lots of time to reach it, and each update is a uh, is really fun because there is there are more dynamic call sites. So we patch out define method, I patch out uh, all this stuff over time. So Ice Nine is just for data structures. So it's not it's not that library. I've, I've never I've never found the time and energy to 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 write a public of this global stop meter programming from now method which, which patches all of these APIs out of Ruby. Um, there are some there are some uh, gems already. I think one is from Postmodern. He has a gem which disables eval at a, after a certain point, which is a great thing to do. Just removes the method from the kernel namespace. Um, Say from Postmodern? Postmodern, I think he, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I do not use that one. Understood. I think it's because I'm familiar with uh, Postmodern underscore three. Um, Basically, as long as I've been doing Ruby, I've been following postmodern's work. Yeah, really. Uh, I'm gonna post. Yeah, sorry. For some reason, for some reason hey, Google doesn't want to talk to me, so yeah, can't find anything. It, it, it does that. It, it knows you're on a, a podcast. That's what happens. <laughs> That's um, what happens. Yeah. The so the, the interesting take and the question that I have for both of you, right, in this in this situation where you're dealing with engineers. And you're trying to build, you know, uh, you know, can I? I mean, I don't know how how involved you get on the 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 Ruby library and deployment side of uh, of the monolith, but at the same time, like, how do you ensure that um, what it is that's being developed is what's uh, being represented to clients and is being used in production, right? I mean, that's the real question that I have. Because from first, a security perspective, that, that that seems like a huge, huge gap for me. Yep. Yeah. You, you just reduce the risk of, of Delta. You can never be okay. sure. So that's, that's, that's the first thing to realize. You will never be sure that with these kinds of, actually with any language, but the, the gap is much higher in dynamic languages. You will never be sure that what you tested and verified is actually the behavior in production. The only thing you can do is a series of steps to reduce the risk of a significant delta, yeah, and and it's yeah. it's quite invasive, and lots of lots of Ruby people would really dislike stock to interact with the code bases I nailed down like that. But it's the only reason, only, only way to actually be sure that what I tested ended up in production. I mean, to your point, we find bugs. I mean, just within the last forty-eight hours, there was a bug, um, and I'm not talking about security bugs. Even I'm talking about just like. 
Yeah, just exactly. And, and they, some of these are around for a while and it takes the right condition to, for them to actually manifest. Uh, be caught to manifest and then be caught. Exactly. So uh, yeah, like it's, it's just to your point, like I see that probably every four or five months on average, there'll be some bug where it's like, how did, how did that never come so up let's, before? Let's talk about you know? semantics and units here. When you write a piece of code in Ruby, the only canonical way to guard its semantics, what it, what it should do is you write a test for it. The yep. problem is that a traditional TD cycle, let's assume you do it. Let's assume you adhere strict to the, to the core of the core of TDD. You start to write a red test. Then you write the minimum amount of code to get it green. And then you start to write another red test. Let's see. And the assumption is that all the code you've written is covered by the test. The problem is nothing, literally nothing in a traditional TD cycle guarantees that you only implemented that green test. Yep. And so that's yeah. where mutation testing comes in. Mutation yeah, testing is able to guarantee, sorry for interrupting you, um, no, no, to heuristically fine. guarantee that there is no extra semantics but in the test. You're speaking to Seth's language. He loves you, testing, so that's why you, you, you are. You are, and and, and I, I like. I'm interested to talk about your mutant library and the, the uh, like. What it is that you're doing there, because it sounds like that's where it came from. But th this is where, um, like, I've been talking with like the local OWASP chapter about testing recently, specifically around this the, this functionality because. The, the QA tests and the integration tests, the functional tests that are, we normally do, don't cover edge cases, right? Exactly, and that's, a, that's when, you have, when, you, when you do TDD, you are supposed to write some form of unit test and the unit should be as fine-grained as possible. And with Ruby, I actually resorted to write a test per public method per object. That's, the, that's my default at this point. I gave up uh -huh. to, to, to just assume that some more higher-level tests can do it. Sometimes I declare... Um, a specific class as private inside a namespace and I only test the very public method which is supposed to have a stable interface. I can point to some examples later in some of the code, public code I wrote. And so, and under that assumption, by definition, if you do TDD against such a public method which forms a unit that could be test, tested, um, and you use you use a form of mutation testing which guarantees that at least statistically, because no mutation testing tools are fairly dumb, they just run a relatively unsophisticated heuristic to reduce semantics and try to get the test to admit that this, this specific thing that reduced is not covered. Then you have two options. You can either not write the code that way and just use a simpler form. We can go into various syntactic constructs later. Or you just say, oh, that's a really important thing my code does, which is actually not in the test, so I just add the test. And this is the and only if you do this very partially ridiculous cycle, because sometimes you need to you need to write a very boring test, but the language has no other constraints. There's no type system, there is no universal quantification, there are no type classes where you can say something for all A and B, this function does X, semantic X in that case. Um, as long as you do not have this kind of I call it transient reasoning. So types are, uh, types are. you do not need examples. You can actually make for all examples. And if you choose the right types, they elemented lots of boring tests. That's the reason I was drawn to Hester. Basically, I maxed out my uh, amount of example by specification Ruby. I was like, I do not want to do write boring tests anymore. And then when you have a, a strong type system, they eliminated like 90% of it. And uh, now I'm at the point in Haskell that I'm like, oh, I would really like a mutation testing engine. So uh, because uh, it 
must be much more fun because the type checker is much faster than tests, which means if I write a mutation testing engine, large parts of the mutations will come back by the type test, will come back as dead by the type checker already. And only a small fraction then hits my very fast tests because Haskell obviously executes much faster than Ruby. So, yeah. and that's, that's my, Sorry to go totally off the rails. We were talking about Ruby and testing. So just, I was spun out of control here. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, back to Ruby and testing and on how to, that's my payment plan for dynamic languages. Okay. So I, I, I say, okay, I'm on a dynamic language. The smallest unit I control is probably a public method in a specific object that I write code for. And I write tests for all these public methods, which are assumed to cover all semantics in the call graph of that public method. I do not test my dependencies because it would be ridiculous. And uh, I just assume active record does, does it. for example, I use the active record API in my object, um, does the right thing. And I assume that if I, if I change the code under test automatically with changes, which strictly reduce semantics, I never do something new. I do not add a log statement. I just delete statements. I delete I delete methods in a chain. I delete an argument. I delete um, the left uh, the left side of one plus uh, a plus b. I delete the a. Let the b and so on and so forth. I assume that if my tests are they're not are covering because tests are just examples. They are not types. So let's say if my test could even have a remote chance to actually specify my code, all these semantic reductions should be caught by the test suite. And if not, I have a giant hole I need to fix. And it will only get me to like 95% of certainty, but it's much better than standard Ruby where you just do TDD. Yeah. That's my current go-to approach to actually pay the tech debt of using a dynamic language. And, and that's an interesting, I, I mean, it's a different take to come at it, right? Like, cause I, I always come at it from kind of the security testing perspective. Right? I think and it, so it boils down in the end and there's no difference anymore. Oh yeah, yeah, it really does. And, and that's what I'm thinking about is Hey, I you know I know I I start to think about like different payloads that uh, you know we can throw at at functions at you know at those public interfaces and just to see how they respond. But the mutation testing that you're doing is kind of the, more of the full coverage as yes, far as you can, can what, get. What is the security bug? A security bug could be in the sense of TDD and extra semantics be defined by an unintended protocol formed by extra semantics added during a TDD cycle, which compounds, accumulates, and then forms a protocol which allows some form of exploitation. Yes. Because exploitation yep. is nothing more than unintended semantics being triggerable by some endpoint. So that's, and if you constantly remove the semantic delta, the chance of finding something in a high-level code review is lowered. It's not zero, but um, I take ninety percent, uh, killing ninety percent of all of all sources of small additions and semantics. Nobody asked for. Nobody in that case is a test. If if you do this constantly over the entire development cycle, the chance that a, a focus review for our security finds something is far lower, and actually the tests become meaningful because you know already the test had passed the mutation testing system, so I can actually check the tests on what the system is doing. I do not have to dynamically trace as much anymore. Yeah. It's not yeah. about, it's not so much as, let's say, let's say it that way. You have, you see a function definition, um, def, foo, bar, and there is a default argument for bar. So you see this as a, as a, as a security tester. So the, then you need to ask yourself, okay, so is this default ever used? And is this default ever used without its default, uh, with, with just the value other than the default value? So could I just remove the, um, the default argument? No. Um, this is this is one of the core things uh, when I introduce mutant to new code bases. Typically, people do not specify a test case where the default actually is 
is, is provided or is not provided or the default is provided to with a different value than the default value would be. And then if you use mutation testing during such a development cycle to make such a make such a method, you have a full specification of that method in the test. So you know, okay, the author of that piece of code actually has a full specification of the default argument. I can look at it fine. I, it's not like it's not like totally fluent through the entire code base anymore. It, it removes it removes one level of research for you as a as a as a security minded reviewer. And also yeah. as a code reviewer, I do lots of code reviews. It's far easier for me to read a 100 line patch and know. Okay, so I know what the imitation testing engine would do, and I know the imitation testing engine can do nothing to this code. This removes lots of manual changes I could do through the code base. Like, okay, so can we, we have a chain foobar bars. Can I remove the bar? No, I can't because the mutation testing engine did it for me already. I don't have to think about that rabbit hole right now. I can focus on the high level thing. So it's more about, uh, as I said uh, initially, so we need to do development cycles in a way that the effect of human discipline is minimized. It will never be zero because at a certain point, uh, if, it, if it would be zero, you could just press a button and development would happen. And yeah. um, But I want to spend the limited amount of human discipline I have during a day on something where the human mind is actually suited for. And it's not suited for to test various small hypotheses of is this bar or is this default method and so on and so forth. So these small things can be can be can be automatically tested and then I can focus on whatever is left and there is enough left. There's enough left. I can think about encodings. I can think about is it was this method uh, this um this is an ad, a string which is supposed to hold an address and I'm about to post uh, to post it to a different system. Is this different system currently encoding it and so on. I can I can do all that instead of focusing on okay is this if ever triggered is this else ever triggered and and removing all these low level questions from my head allows me to spend the limited amount of discipline far more efficiently. And this is my payment plan for Ruby. Yeah. So this, this is what I ended up with after doing that for seven years in an environment where mistakes were very punishing, let's say. That. Yes. So, well, so you, you, you want to start a payment plan for Python then? Is that what you want? That's never mind. <laughs> no, I don't have I don't have imitation testing engine for Python. I've written Python okay. like last time ten years ago. So I've never written tooling for Python. So I wouldn't know on how to do it. So that's wanna... this is just one instance of a possible payment plan. I'm I'm very sure that other people can can come up with different solutions on how to deal with the Ruby problem. So my yeah. my current payment plan is every iteration, every code I touch, I make sure that all of these semantic reduction mutations are covered to make sure they do the chance of forming unintended protocols lowers over time. That's my payment plan for Ruby. So my question with that is like, let's take your example of you have a method that's defined, uh, we'll call it foobar and it takes an just uh, before you said one argument, like, so let's say it takes two or even three arguments. Are you uh, writing default arguments or with defaults or without defaults? Defaults, all just default. All, all are you, okay. Yeah, I'll, like they have a default, but they can be omitted like every, okay. you know, like every Ruby with the predefined <laughs> arguments can be. So the question I have is, are you saying that with, uh, with, with mutation testing that you, are you having to write, say like, let's say you had to write two separate tests. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if you need to write two separate tests, like one test that says there's no argument provided and one that's like some arguments provided. Do you are you are you writing like for, just, it's two two questions really? The test are you defined The test needs to have a call site where if the argument would not be provided, it would make a difference to the test outcome if the argument were removed from the code. 
it's a very long sentence and probably got it wrong. It's much easier to write it down. And um, that's I guess it. my... Oh, yeah, so, go ahead. so the number of tests is not very, it's not the metric here. It's the number of semantics the tests observe. You could actually kill, in theory, write one test for an entire Rails application if it touches all semantics. So if, this is just because how do you count a test? Is it the number of results? Sometimes it, uh, is it the number of groups? So I, I do not want to go into, into that territory until, until we have a definition we can all agree on. Let's just argue about what kinds of semantics the tests ask for uh, asked to be observed in the code so let's sure. let's say we test an argument we test a message with three we test a message with three with three optional arguments then the mutation testing engine would kill all arguments and then run your tests your tests will pass very likely you never provide an argument which makes a difference in your tests and then you then it's up to you the test okay, also to actually my question. we are Slightly go ahead. Busy. Sorry. 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 Go ahead. Okay. So, and uh, then it's up to you to provide yeah. uh, to provide uh, to make your test notice that if the default um, uh, to make your test notice, which is very likely. Okay. Now I pass in arguments because uh, to make sure that the engine cannot take it out because then I get a number of arguments error. But then the funny thing is most developers, including me, because we are tired, it's just a stupid test, would pass in the default argument. And then it's not a specification. You need to pass in something else than the default. And only then it, uh, it tells the mutation testing engine that the default actually matters and actually that you can specify something else and you intend to specify something else. And what happens is typically with using mutation testing, you do not write more tests, you write far less code because you, uh, that's, that's the course thing. Let's talk about Ruby fetch. Let's uh, hash, hash, um, hash square operator. Um, Let's go for the. Let's go. You have a you have a map and you know the key exists. So what what do, what do you do? You write the square bracket operator done. Problem, there is now there is in, in three three years or three iteration cycles down um, down the iteration chain. Um, you for some reason production hits a key uh, hits a key which doesn't exist. But you everybody assumed it exists, so the nil gets propagated somewhere and it blows up. 20 lines uh, in the call stack somewhere else. It's a pain in the ass. Right. So what Key Mutant, not found. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, what okay. Mutant does is it forces you to use hash fetch unless you actually have a case where you want to read the default hash, the default, uh, default return value of a of the square bucket operator. So there's, uh, by default, so it's nil. Cool, if, it, if it's not, it doesn't break. Yes, so if, what Mutant will do is, if you ever use the hash fetch, if you have a hash square bucket operator, it will force you to use fetch unless you actually have a test which shows you that you are uh, that you are correctly handling the nil, which could just be to not crash and just return. It's 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 very easy to kill that one, but it goes it, it just removes implicit semantics all the time. So because from going from scrap operator to fetch, it gives you a key error instead of a, a silent nil, which in my mind is less semantics because you you leave the value space, so you go into exception space. And um, the same is for um, providing an argument to a function. So let's say you have a call site for these. Uh, we, we just made an example for these three optional parameters. Let's say you have a call site and um, you specify a call site for a function which takes three optional arguments. Mutation testing will take all arguments out and run the test for your function which calls that function. And if it still comes back green, it, it tells you something. It tells you something that, that you didn't observe anything, basically. You just observe the default behavior of that method. You never specified a case where changing these default arguments actually makes a difference. 
And if you then have the development practice in your team to say, okay, we only accept code if it passes mutation testing over time, these kinds of these kinds of problems disappear because people learn like okay an optional argument is basically just a hidden if so maybe we should we should we should reduce the need for these things and do not write these giant APIs which take a which take a which take an array and maybe it's a hash pass and the, the implementation just some sensing maybe it's as a block and with the block returns a hash and all this this semantic clusterfuck these APIs are just the result of a dynamic language also because they are add only it's much easier to uh, for the for the look at kernel system. Where you, where you spawn processes. It's like 500 different forms and they didn't exist from the beginning of time. They were added over time. They were like, okay, so initially it was maybe just a string it went through bin sh and then we were like, ah, but it's in, unsafe and okay, so maybe we add an escaping system, shell, shellbots or however it's called. Uh, it's still bad. Maybe we want to go to execve. Okay, so then if you pass an array, so, and it's still the same API, but lots of optional behavior stash inside these APIs. And I wanted in, for my teams to make it more painful to ever define these interfaces. So that's, that's the other pushback here. You write, you basically, you constrain yourself in writing more simple code in this payment plan for Ruby. Right. But your payment plan, basically the, the, the mutation testing, uh, that sort of, that, that you're not writing N exponentially amount of tests depending no, no, no. on how you that method is. just need the, one counterexample. What typically happens okay. is you, 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 um, let's go for let's go for something fun like addition. You, let's assume there's no addition in the Ruby core library, and for some reason we could still add. So you write a function add a plus b, and you say uh, the implementation is a plus b, and then you test that one. And uh, a typical case is okay. I test I test one plus zero. It should still be one. The implementation testing engine will tell you, hey, if I take out the b in the implementation, it, this test still passes. So maybe make provide me some input which tells me that b is actually evaluated in some kind of semantic form. So it's not typically an exponential blow up. It's more like, it's more linear. So um, if you if you do test constraint by mutation testing, it's typically um, the number of branches, the number of tests you write in a function. That's 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 the typical thing. So then you, uh, sometimes it's a little bit more hairy and you can go with some, uh, uh, writing good tests is also a form, writing uh, an art form, writing duplicates is also an art form, which means you yeah. can go with included examples, you can go with uh, better test oracles and so on and so forth. So there's there's lots to do. For example, I, I was talking about um, uh, a case where I do not have a specification for all public methods because these public methods are in so-called private objects. Um, the unparser I wrote. The unparser takes AST to concrete syntax under the constraint. If you were to pass this concrete syntax again, you get the same AST. Okay, okay, I see what you mean. And so that's, yeah. same yeah, that's, that's, node structure breakdown of an AST, they're the same. Takes it to concrete up. syntax, takes it to concrete syntax, but under the constraint, if you pass it again, you get the same AST. So you do not get the same code because there's many more concrete syntax for a given S node than the other way around. And that thing has one public method. It's unparser.unparse. And there is a giant swat of private classes for each node type inside, writing to the buffer and all this stuff. And... Um, this, this entire generator is specified through this unparser unparse method and all mutations are killed via that one. So it's, it's, you need to, you need to, uh, with that approach, you need basically, you always need to define your, what's my public interface? So the various small emitter classes are not my public interface. And I do not have specs for them, but the mutation testing engines, good ones are actually capable to figure that out. So they see, okay, so there is unparser emitter sent. 
This is a class name. I have a hive invitation in Z1 in a private method called dispatch. Okay, so let's let's look at the specs. What specs do we have? Is there a spec for private uh, unparser emitter send dispatch? No, there is none. Okay, let's go one scope up. Is there is there a one for unparser emi uh, emitter send? No, unparser emitter. No, unparser. Yes, and then Z1 is supposed to ca to catch limitations. Oh, interesting. So it's it's. I mean, it's using the power of the dynamic language to test the dynamic language is basically kind of what it yes, sounds like it's, it's, talking it, about. It, it, so the implementation is very funny at, at points. So um, also mutant can pet, can test itself and makes a dynamic in-memory in copy to then execute from the copy against its own test, against its normal namespace, all this stuff. So, but it's not, so it's more like RSpec gives me a little bit of metadata where, where I can select the correct tests for. And if I do not write a test for a private method, then it would just scope up. Uh, it's, it's just like IP routing. You find the longest prefix match, and then you go with it. Okay. And as, but the, the you, what I really want to drive home here is it's about not leaving these small breadcrumbs of extra semantics all over your code. Yeah. And always need a counter example when you want to do something complex. Example, you want to have... Um, you have a you have an if uh, you have a ternary ternary operation. It's basically just an obfuscated, just another conc a concrete syntax for an if branch, and um, you have an uh, you have a, you have something which uh, gets evaluated on when the condition is true, something which is evaluated when the condition is false, and mutant will just take out one of these faults. It will line coverage has told you one hundred percent already, but mutant will just take out the computational branch on when the condition is false and ask you can can we remove this? You have every Every alive mutation is basically just a flag by an expert code reviewer. Why don't we remove this? And in most cases, it's just like, oh, yes, actually, it was redundant because I actually meant to use the fetch operator after a fetch operation on a hash after I learned what it actually means. <laughs> that it's much better to blow up early if it's not found, unless the code bus explicitly expects the default value of a hash to be returned and so on and so forth. So it's more about each of these automatically generated flags is a question why don't we do this simpler thing? Yeah. And then, you, like, and then you can sorry. then you can reply to the engine. Okay, actually, good idea. You 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 edit the code to do the simplest thing. The engine will shut up, shut up, because there is nothing more it can do. But sometimes, like, hey, that's actually important. We actually need to handle unknown keys in that hash. Uh, let's write a test for that. And if you iterate this game forward, it results in code which is far less susceptible to the kinds of problems you have as reviewers on a dynamic language. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was concerned about with this, with but I'm not anymore, was, you know, the, the biggest complaints are tests take too long or I have to write too many tests, but also sometimes writing too many tests means there's... This doesn't seem like it's an... Um, and, and that would those would be the major roadblocks I would see to, to being able to test in this way and paying down technical debt in this way, but I don't, I mean... Clearly, that that's not really a, a roadblock. Um, so, because we have to wrap up here soon, I did want to just like um, so. If you just kind of summarize sort of your thoughts, I mean, I, I think we've you've you've talked quite a quite a bit in terms of details. But if you wanted to summarize for folks, like your sort of like, I guess thoughts on 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 Ruby, I. I and and where you see it it possibly going? I mean, you've talked a lot about paying down technical debt and ways to to go about that via implementation details. But you know, I guess I'll just ask you: Do you plan on continuing to use Ruby? And I, 
do you think, you know, like, again, sort of any summarized thoughts on like so I would, other people from, continuing with the so, Ruby so ecosystem? I, I think that the technological choice you have when starting a system is bounded by many things. The, the language you're choosing, the current skill level of the, of the developers you have access to, and this all plays a role. From I personally, from where I am, I wouldn't start Greenfield with Ruby ever. But I will still touch Ruby because there are high-value code bases out there which need help and need yep. incremental improvement and need to solve fundamental issues. So and so that's I personally wouldn't touch Ruby if it's new, but I would totally find to touch Ruby uh, for clients which need uh, which need help. So there, I I, I cannot tell. I cannot make a universal statement for anyone out right. there because I do not know where they are. So I can only tell how I navigate from where I am. Yeah. And this can be an example for their navigation. Yeah. And where do you think that the uh, Ruby ecosystem is, is, is headed? I mean, personal, professional thoughts. You so know. so I, I have high hopes for gradual typing. And I have high hopes for um, native deep frozen objects, which could tidy up a lot. Um, but I don't have high hopes that it delivers. So, so I have high hopes for the concept, but not high hope for the delivery. And I don't blame, I, I love the Ruby maintainers. They're doing a good job, but it's more like, um, they progressive, they are working on dynamic language and this has inherent constraints. So there's, um, and that's basically, I, I do admire them that they try regardless, but I wouldn't put my money on it. Let's say that's, that could be a good summary. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, you've given honestly like there's so much to unravel from this. It's conversation. a little bit. It's a little bit unstructured. So I'm I'm not used to do this in verbal language in this format. So I, because I'm I was ten years remote before it was cool. I was just typing all day. It's all like uh, it's much easier. Lots of lots of semantic constructs we talked about. It's much easier if we had some kind of Markdown and enhanced uh, chat or a whiteboard or something like that. But exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, code. So uh, that's what I wanted to drive home. Everybody who's interested to get a demo on these kinds of Ruby things, I'm happy to do it. Um, just hit me okay. up on Twitter. I love talking about this. Yeah. yeah so I did put your your um, your Twitter account up there for folks to reach out. I mean, honestly, I, I just because we I mentioned earlier we had discussed privately some of these things. Like, yeah, but, but there's more to it. There's more to it. So so. Making yeah. these mutation operators let my team realize that there is a there is there is an axiomatic way of making decisions. It's not like um, I want to get rid of oh okay so we have a technical argument and technical weight wins because the seniority of the oldest guy in the room and he is always doing like that. No no it's so you can actually break down good software development from from a core axiom which is basically uh, let's go with um, the man um, choose the thing a simple. Simple thing is power, most powerful thing you can do in that moment. And that's a good engineering principle. Example, if you have a K, if you have a conditional branch on if, on a Boolean, then it's an if. If you have a conditional branch um, with, with more possibilities um, for the branch points, then it's probably a case. So never use a case statement on, on, on a Boolean because this is, uh, the case statement has more powerful semantics. And that's what I'm what I'm trying to drive home. It's not arbitrary. So our, our craft, it, it, uh, oftentimes it looks like everybody just makes, has his style and so on. I, I would argue this actually only exists in a small portion. And we 
tend to invoke style where we're out of arguments. And I think there is more to it. I think I've heard Stefan say multiple times, never use as a case class for a Boolean. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Stefan's like um, a resident language theory guy. He's on here quite a bit. Um, yeah, I sh honestly, we should have pulled him in. Um, yeah. Well, we shouldn't have because then this conversation would be a four-hour conversation. <laughs> so it would have been so it would have been a it's, it's, it's still very unstructured. I would love to find a way to finalize this. So I think our craft of software development is still in its absolute infancy. And if I look at the medical profession, they basically know unless it's a double blind study is bullshit. And we don't have this global invariance yet. And no. we should actually, and we should, we should be able to eliminate lots of discussions because if you as a team end up in making, in, in, in agreeing to shared axioms, lots of discussions just disappear because everybody would just follow the same decision passed down. There's an entire other discussion to have to have on how to work together in a software team on that basis. Yeah. Yeah, um, there is. I, I mean, the craft of software engineering is not, I, I mean, it's new, right? It, it's still incredibly new and there's no, yeah, there's no defined way to do it or there's no defined set of axioms that we're building towards or that we're using to, to do anything. And then we change the lang language, we change the framework, we use dynamic versus Some of compiled. these things are transient. So some of these yeah. things are universally true. So when you have a construct, when you, when you use a construct, which is powerful, to do something a less powerful construct could do, Conceptually, regardless at what level, you can go syntactic, semantic, um, on which keyword you choose. That's a good one. It's, it's one which is easy to agree to, but it's very hard to adhere to because everybody loves the double quote versus single quote debate. Yeah. It's just, but if you, if you actually think uh, and subject yourself to such an axiom, your opinion doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's a little bit of, it's a very humbling experience because then you choose single quotes unless you use interpolation, because if you use double quotes without any kind of interpolation, it's using a more powerful primitive for something which could have a less powerful primitive. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you do this, there is so much more than this stupid uh, syntactic construct. There is, uh, we deal with so many more languages and I propose that one as a solution to lots of bike shedding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. So uh, Marcus, we want to, Thank you for your time, right? We obviously put your Twitter handle up there. Um, it sounds like this conversation is, we'll need to continue on because there's a lot mm. more to unpack, like Ken was saying, that we definitely want to, I, like there's a lot to talk about as far as dynamic languages and yeah, like axioms, like you're saying, and how we actually go about this craft. But I, and, and then I do also want at some point to talk further about you know, mutation testing versus security testing, like, you know, how it subsumes that, but I don't, how, I we, how we take it ever. It's just, it's just enhances the ability yeah. of a security minded person to do it efficiently. It's not never yeah. will, will be replaced. You'd always so far, I don't see any way to remove the human from the process. I can only, yeah, it's just a bicycle for your brain. It's just like yeah. lots of small experiments already done. Okay. I can focus on something high level. Yep. Not, yep. And, that, and that's just it, right? Like if we can focus more on the business logic side of things and exactly what you're saying, translations between systems where humans are good at it, right? Mm -hmm. We'll find those higher level vulnerabilities that actually make, I yeah, mean, you, they have, you, you have time impact. to find the expert change and not being drowned and chasing deals around. Say, yep, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, I know that, that, that Ken's got another meeting um, that's, yeah. that's coming up here pretty Sorry quick. Sorry for dragging so. this out. You wanted to wrap up earlier and I was just rumbling again. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> yeah, no, this no. Was, no, it was awesome. It was it's great. Awesome. Like we, we got, yeah, I mean, like I said, there was so much, there's, I actually am going to go back and rewatch this episode because there's a lot to unravel. And yeah, it got me thinking quite a bit. Um, 
Yeah, yeah I think I, there's some things Seth and I can take away from this as well from as, as security people about security testing. And anyways, there are some ideas that you actually spawned from this. So uh, feel free to reach out. I'm, yeah. so I'm very happy to to also um, to also actually show it in code, which, could, which is much easier than just to talk about it. So whenever you want sure. to or anybody else, just reach out. I'm really happy to uh, to have a chance to explain it because each time I have a chance to explain it, I get better in actually understanding what I'm explaining. So, yeah. Well, we could always have a part two, and I think it'd be awesome to have also Stefan involved in, in that as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. interesting. Yeah. But you need to make sure that I do not go off the rails all the time. So, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Stefan Ste Ste can fight back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, we'll catch everybody next week. And, um, Otherwise, reach out, you know, join the conversation on Twitter and in Slack uh, and let us know if there's anything else you want to talk about. But Marcus, once again, we appreciate your time and appreciate, appreciate everybody listening. Really interesting. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye.